Well, uh, you notice this is a little bit different than normal. You're like, okay, why is the, why are there three of you up there, and why is there not a pulpit, and what in the world is going on? If you haven't been following us, um, what's the deal with that, Matt? Yeah, we we couldn't decide on who was going to preach this morning. <laughs> And there was an arm wrestling match, and there couldn't be any agreement, so we said, fine, we'll both do it. No, that's not it. Um, Brad is actually supposed to be here as well. Um, We do value preaching uh, quite a lot. It feels a little awkward for me to cancel a sermon to do something like this, because we we feel like preaching is a very valuable and important component of our weekly rhythm. Um, But uh, uh, our whole task as shepherds, as pastors, also includes to instruct... And this particular book, um, it seems like lent itself very well to some more discussion style, um, discussion style format, especially because of the, you've, you've noticed if you've been here with us the last couple of weeks, the range of possibility in the text, text, the range of interpretation, and with that, the range of understanding on the elder team. And so um, we as a church don't have like an official dogmatic, here's what revelation is sort of position. And as a matter of fact, um, there's, a, there's a little bit of a spectrum of, of understanding. Dave mentioned it, I've mentioned it, uh, between is, are the events in Revelation primarily future events, or are they, are, are they primarily past events, or are they uh, somewhere in between? They're, they occur throughout history in some way, shape, or fashion. And on the elder team, I think Dave and I sort of represent maybe the spectrum of understanding, if you want to think of it that way. Um, Dave, you've said you've hold primarily a futurist position. I hold something that's called an eclectic position, <laughs> um, meaning, um, meaning some of it's future, some of it's ongoing, some of it's past. You know, it's, there's, not one, uh, there's not one way. Um, between the two of us, and maybe even John, when you add your comments in here, because you are also on the elder team, you've also been part of the conversation, I just wanted you all to know that on the stage here is represented all of the, probably the, the views of the whole elder team. So it's not just, this is not a debate between Dave and I. I was totally kidding about the, it's my turn. No, it's not my turn. You know, <laughs> that sort of thing. But that's why we're doing the panel to dig into, kind of review chapters 1 through 11, dig into some pieces that we weren't able to go into depth on or, or also um, give you the opportunity to respond in questions and help us know where you're tracking and where you could use some clarification. So we're pausing. We're going to do this three times during the series. Uh, we're pausing for a minute to take those questions and have an opportunity for clarity because the book is thick, <laughs> I guess you could say. Yeah. yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Well, and one question just to bounce off of that. So that was a a lot of stuff to try to take in. And there's a lot of stuff in the book of Revelation, right? Right. So a lot of, one of the questions we've gotten is why even dig into this book that seems so shrouded, that seems so difficult to understand? Why are we doing that, especially if we have different views? Well, I think that one of the things is part of the gospel is the second coming of Jesus Christ. And certainly this book encompasses that. And also the coming, eventually, of the kingdom. And Jesus, as we were looking at, he talked about the kingdom as inaugurated in his first coming, but it will be consummated in his second coming. And so I think we're looking forward to this, and I think all of the views see this, uh, you know, at least at the end of the book of Revelation, that we're we're looking at, at really the good news. It's good news. It's in the Old Testament, too. It's in the Gospels. It's in the letters of Paul and Peter that God is going to change this world, and we're going to, it's going to be radically different in the future. And so this is kind of one of the books that culminates that, that 
that shows what the end is going to be like. Yeah, that's right. We want to cover it because it's in the Bible, and our task is to teach the whole counsel of God. And so if we were leaving out a very important component of it, we would be unfaithful to our task. That's great. Well, I'm convinced, so that makes sense. (laughs) Excellent. Well, let's get into some interpretive questions that people have asked us. Um, So first off, what type of book is Revelation, right, as a genre or however you want to take that question? And what does that, what kind of implications does that have on how you would discern its meaning or its implications? Yeah, I think that there's a couple different genres. A genre is a literary form or it could be musical form or uh, subject, uh, group of subjects, or type, um, uh, style. But um, it's primarily two. One is um, an epistle. It's written to seven churches in Asia who were really there, and so it's a letter. Epistle means letter in some language. <laughs> and uh, So anyway, it's a letter. That's written, so it's got some of that style, but right in the middle, there's what's called an apocalyptic style, and that's based on the type of style of the book of Daniel. The book of Ezekiel has some apocalyptic sections, the book of Zechariah, and it's where you have these wild visions that you see from heaven communicating things, often about the future. So that's the two styles that I see in it, is epistolary and apocalyptic. Yeah, agree. And uh, just to say that apocalyptic, we would say, is probably a subgenre of prophecy. Is that accurate? Right. You would say, yeah, okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's a ty- type of the prophetic type of prophecy. genre, I guess. Yeah. So in apocalyptic literature, how does that affect what, uh, the implications that you would draw out from it? Or and maybe more specifically, we see in Revelation a lot of imagery, right? A lot of symbology um, that, you know, how do you know when something is a symbol or when it is literally telling you what's going to happen? How do you make that discernment? Uh, how do you go about that? That's a very good question. It's very, very important for the whole Bible, really, not just apocalyptic literature. But I would say that uh, we should presume that something is um, the same as we would in our own language. I think we read the Bible in the same way that we read any other book. And so how do you know, you know, when you've got a poetry or something, whether that's symbolic or not? Well, it's one thing is the genre. Poetry tends to be much more symbolic, you know, um, if, you read, if you're into poetry. Um, but if you're reading a, a narrative or something or a history, you know, that's probably not going to be as symbolic. Or if you're reading uh, science fiction, you know, that's a particular genre. <laughs> You know, there's some things about that that you can kind of assume. Uh, it helps you interpret what the... You realize it's not real. It's, it's, it's fiction. Um, so I think that... Um, see, what was the question again? <laughs> how, do you, how do you know what's... How, yeah, so I think when you're in the apocalyptic genre, you know that there's going to be more symbolism than there would be in, you know, a letter that Paul has given to the churches or whatever. And a lot of times it says that they're symbols and actually interprets the symbols for you. So, mm-hmm. yeah, with with genre, it's interesting that if you're expecting one kind of genre and you start reading or listening to the words with that expectation in mind, it's going to impact your uh, how you are receiving the information. And the famous, you know, the famous illustration here is when the War of the Worlds, that that uh, sci-fi uh, story about aliens invading Earth, when it was first 
released on the population. It was released in a radio broadcast uh, during a section of time that was typically news. And that was part of the art uh, that they wanted. They wanted to release this art uh, this way. And what ended up happening was a large public panic because they were tuning into the news and hearing about aliens invading. And um, that, w- that, that was part of the fun, I guess, for the author <laughs> of the book and part of the wonder of that sort of storytelling. Um, but if the people would have been tuning into Story Hour on the radio, <clears throat> they would have been... Um, they would have just been oriented to it differently. There wouldn't have been public panic. And, you know, the story wouldn't have been as impactful, I, uh, you know, in some ways. I'm not saying that Revelation is science fiction like War of the Worlds. I'm saying that your expectation about what you're reading is going to impact how literally, in a sense, that you take what you are reading. And uh, the second thing I want to say for us as um, postmodern Americans, some of us still modern because we live in Iowa, is that just, well, <laughs> you know, just because, just, just because something is not meant to be taken literally does not mean that it's not speaking truly. Um, and I don't mean that in a relativistic, postmodern sort of way. I mean that what John is doing with the genre of apocalyptic is he's illustrating, largely illustrating, spiritual truths using this amazing imagery. Uh, one example would be the dragon we're about to find out about next week. I am not aware of a position that believes that there will literally be a red dragon that shows up on the planet, like, like we think of red dragons. It seems, for whatever reason, it seems obvious to people who have read it throughout, uh, throughout history that the dragon is used as a symbol for great evil and power. And uh, so we'll talk about that more in, in the coming weeks. But how do you make the decision? What is literal? Was John literally sitting on the island of Patmos on the Lord's Day worshiping in exile, well, yeah, I, th- I think so. Did John literally see uh, a vision of Jesus standing there looking with a, you know, the sword coming out of his mouth? Yeah, I think he literally saw a vision. Now, when it starts to get to questions like, does that mean that Jesus was literally physically present with John on the island of Patmos in that room? It gets foggier. Is that, I mean, I don't know if you want to nuance that at all, Dave. But Yeah, I mean... Yeah. It was literally a dragon when he saw it in the vision. Yeah, that's a dragon. You he could tell that. In the vision, he but, saw you know, a literal it, it dragon. It represented something. Yeah. And it's clear to him, and I think it's clear as we read it, that it represented something. Mm-hmm. You know, as an example, I think of the, so, some difficulty in this is one of the most contentious parts of Christianity is when Jesus said, this is my body. Mm-hmm. And I think it's an example that, it's, uh, that illustrates something, and it's that you should put yourself in the context of the, of the original hearer, not what, your own context. When Jesus said, this is my body, and he was presenting it there at the, at the Last Supper, his, he, his body was there. I mean, they knew, no, that's not your body. Your body's there. You know, they knew this was metaphorical. This was an, an analogy that he was giving. Well, thousands of years later, when Jesus had gone back in heaven, enthroned in heaven, and Jesus is not present, there was a great hunger for his presence to be with us. And so someone looked at that, or people looked at that and says, this is your body. Well, it actually, it says it is. You know, it actually is the body and blood of Christ. But in the first century, that would be anathema. I mean, to think of drinking blood for a Jew, for Peter, or, or any of, the, any of the, the Jews, that was absolutely against their law. It was, they would have vomited if they thought that was real blood. 
Uh, they understood it to be symbolic back then. So put yourself in the place as much as possible. Try to figure out, put yourself as much as you can know from studies or even just reading the rest of the scripture. You can know quite a bit about what was happening in their day and how they were thinking. And the previous theology that they had before this, how that might impact it. If you put yourself in that place instead of our modern seat and look at it from that first. And then the second question is how do you apply that to yourself. Yeah. yeah, that's good. I know one of the interpretive keys that has been brought out in this series is where have I heard this before? So could you expand on that a little bit, Matt? What does that mean? Right, and it kind of gets to the question of how do we know what's meant to be taken literally and what's not. Well, one of the ways you find out uh, is by asking that question, have we seen this, have we seen something like this before? Where have I heard this before? Um, and uh, a lot of this imagery about locusts and dragons and armies and hail and thunder and rainbows and lightning um, also show up in the Old Testament, especially in the prophets, like, Eze- like you mentioned today, Ezekiel, Zechariah, Isaiah, um, Daniel especially. Maybe Daniel would be one of the, the highly, most highly concentrated. Um, and so what we should take from that is that John is, I think this is my, my presupposition, I guess, what we should take from that is that John is meaning to point us to Daniel, to Ezekiel, to those places where these other things show up, where those symbols are either more clearly, uh, clearly illuminated, um, they're, they're interpreted there, or we should also ask the question, how would the Jews have understood what was going on? How would the original audience have under, of Revelation have understood what was going on in those passages? And then that's, what, that's the meaning John is bringing into um, and so I think we've highlighted, um, we've highlighted this. Wherever I heard this before, there's a couple of options. One is it's a very clear uh, an, an, uh, reference to an Old Testament passage, usually a prophecy or an apocalyptic. Two, it's a reference to a New Testament teaching, things we've seen elsewhere in the New Testament that the original audience would have had access to. Three, it's an obvious allusion to a cultural, uh, cultural situation that the audience would have been very well aware of, and we also still to this day are aware of. Um, and what I'm trying to do with that statement is protect against hidden meanings that some special person gets to know. Um, and then four is maybe we don't know. Maybe we don't see a link to the Old Testament. We don't see a link to culture. And in that case, we don't need to do anything with the image. We don't need to try to find out. Oh, I missed one. John explicitly says, here's what this is. This, you know, so the, the lampstands, those are the churches. He says, these are the churches. So that kind of, that, that's a really key component for us, I think, is where, Dave, you want to expound on that at all? Or? Well, I think you went over that a, a week or two ago. Right. And, and uh, some slides there, that was very good. Yeah, we're trying to repeat that on, on repeat for everybody's sake, yeah. Definitely. Repeat it on repeat. Sure. Double and we'll repetition. keep expanding out that resources section of stonebreak.org slash revelation as we go through this series. So keep checking back there for that. So one of the things that's coming out is there's, there seems to be a lot of challenge in interpreting revelation. Why did God communicate this stuff in a way that seems to be a little bit veiled, a little bit difficult to figure out? Why do you think he communicated in this way rather than just telling us what was going to happen? That's a really good question. Maybe we'll have to ask him when we get, <laughs> when we get there. Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, one thing I think is that there's a power in symbology that, you know, when you think of a red dragon, um, that can be a frightening, you know, just 
poetry, what, why is poetry so powerful? Well, you can say so much in such a, uh, a succinct way and, and bring imagery out that is really powerful. And so I think that's part of it, is it really fires our imagination. Yeah, it highlights the spiritual reality, I think is one way I would say that. Um, it's, it's less impactful to say there's going to be a really bad dude who shows up and he's going to do a lot of bad things. That's going to happen in the future. And we'd all go, oh, okay. You know, it's another thing to say it. And then I saw a beast rise out of the river. And uh, the badness of that bad guy is that bad. You know, uh, highlighting the weight of sin, the, the magnitude of God's wrath against evil. Um, it's hard to do in, uh, I'll call it prose, you know, hard to do in just straight literal, literal language, um, which is why we write songs. It's why we tell fictional stories to stir not only our intellect, but also our emotion. I think that's one thing. Another, another possibility here, too, by the way, is with the genre of apocalyptic, um, there may be a way of uh, encoding messages for those, and I say encoding in Revelation, and I gotta be really careful uh, when I bring that up, um, for, for those who have ears to hear. So, um, so that the Roman Empire, it could you know, kind of fly under the radar of the, the, the Roman Empire and communicate a message without explicitly having in writing. Uh, Nero or Caligula, they're the devil, <laughs> and, and God's going to judge them. Um, that, that's one thing I've heard about the apocalyptic genre, is it lets you speak a little more freely in a way, because you know the reference, you know who I'm talking about. You know. Let the reader understand. Yeah, Exactly. Yeah. And that may, that number may, is 666, number of a man, get it? Okay, yeah. And all the audience would have gone, oh, yeah, okay. And that's confusing to us because we don't have the same access to the reference readily available that they had. We'll get into that in a few weeks, by the way. I think the same thing uh, is true with Jesus' parables. Yes. You know, he, if he had boldly proclaimed himself to be the Messiah, he probably would have been wiped out, you know, right away, but... Uh, you know, he, there was a timing for him to, to die, and he wanted to get the message out in a subtle way for those who have ears to hear. And I think that can be true, and it probably can be true today. You know, people who are interested in God and, and wanting to find the truth, they'll take the time to study Revelation and, and study, you know, what the Bible says about the future. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think it takes into account the fact that we're not just informational beings. We're human beings, and God has created us with emotions, um, with a sense that our experiences shape what we believe and who we are. And so he, and as you look at how God has revealed himself over time, he didn't just say, hey, this is everything about me. Here's a manual for how to live your life. He interacted with his people. He cared for them, and he walked alongside them. And he did it in, uh, you could say, a very human way in many ways, and also a very transcendent way, a way that could be only be God. And uh, so, yeah, I think, I think it's a beautiful thing, and Revelation's pretty cool. Let's drill down into some more specifics of a couple things. First, let's start with the seven thunders. Matt, you talked a little bit about the seven thunders, yeah. thunders. last week. Um, could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I can't because there's nothing in there about them. No, I okay, did. Good. I did make a. I did make a statement that did cause some of the question that that survey I sent out with questions. Uh, the, the the ones that answered uh, had multiple questions. Everyone asked about my statement about the seventh thunder, so I thought I should probably clear this up. Um, when I said uh, toward the end of the the sermon, because I said toward the beginning, we don't know what the seven thunders said because Jesus or the voice from the throne told John, "Don't write this down," and so he didn't. And so we just have to be okay with that. 
And then later I said, here's what the seven thunders are about. And people went, wait a second. And so first of all, kudos to you that caught, <laughs> caught that. And, and what I was doing, by the way, was, was a little bit of speculation, and I appreciate being called out on it, um, by the way. There are three mainstreams of thought on what the thunders are doing. Um, and one is the thing that I said clearly at the beginning, which was we don't know and aren't meant to know. Um, the second is something, it's close to it, that it was a special secret message for John only. Um, and then the third, the third major category of what the th seven thunders are doing is, it's actually, uh, don't, don't write about this yet. Instead, here's the scroll, eat this scroll that are the seven thunders. And then what happens next in terms of the witnesses and the woman and the beast that's, and the chapter 12, 13, 14 that are coming about the beasts. That's what's what the seven thunders are talking about. Um, I take the first one that we just don't know. Um, and part of that is, um, part of the comment I made, what, what I was meaning to say in the moment was that Jesus, as we see in the unsealing of the seals, is absolutely in control of the unfolding of history. And if he doesn't let it unfold, it won't unfold. And then I pointed to, see, just like the seven thunders. He doesn't let the seven thunders happen. And I made it, I made it, made it speculation, and that the connection that I made there made it seem like um, that uh, the seven thunders won't happen because John didn't write it down. Um, what I said was a little bit of speculation, that the seven thunders won't happen because Jesus is not letting them happen. And that's, my main point is that Jesus is, absolutely in control over the unfolding of the events of history, which is the confidence we can have. We don't have to worry that somehow history is cascading out of control and Jesus can't do anything about it. That's my main point. And anything else I said beyond that was speculation and you're free to ignore it. So, <laughs> Perfect. That sounds good. Let's hit two main um, items that often come up when we talk about the end times. The first is the rapture. Okay. We haven't talked much about that yet, have we? No, we haven't. So... Um, What's the deal with the rapture? Uh, where does that idea come from? Because we haven't gotten to it yet in Revelation, right? right? Or will we? Well, what do you think, Dave? Let me give Dave a chance. Okay. I don't think the word rapture is found in Revelation, but it is found for First Thessalonians 4. Yeah. It says um, that we'll be caught up together with him in the air. First of all, those who have fallen asleep in Christ, those who have already died, but then some that are still alive and have not died will be caught up with him in the air while they're still living. And so that's where the word rapture comes from. I think it's the Latin word caught up. Caught up, yeah. That's so great. that's in Thessalonians. Um, where it occurs in Revelation, I don't know that we know. And it, personally, I'm not convinced that it's all that clear to be definitive when it's actually going to happen in the t whole time sequence of, of the second coming and the resurrection and multiple resurrections or whatever. There's all kinds of theories on that. Mm -hmm. um, I'm somewhat agnostic as to when that will be. That makes sense. Matt, could you go over the possible, sure. the different possible views on the rapture? I could. Um, and and just, to, just to restate, the reason we haven't talked about the rapture in Revelation is because Revelation doesn't talk about the rapture. That, that might surprise some of you. Um, there are a few points in Revelation that hint at maybe, maybe this is it, um, and that could be. It's possible. Um, but there, nowhere does it say, and then the rapture happens, right? Um, so the four, the four major viewpoints, um, there's actually three on this one, I think, um, is that uh, in, in uh, you don't need to know these terms, but I'm going to throw them out for those that do know them, in the dispensational premillennial position, which has been the most popular 
the most popular position in American Christianity um, in this past century. So from the 1900s to the 1980s, 1990s, it was the probably dominant view in evangelicalism. So I'll, I'll, be, I'll be honest, for those of you who are a little bit older than me and older, it's probably the position that you hold. For those of you that are my age and a little bit younger, it's probably the position that you were taught growing up. And then probably for those of you who are younger than that, you haven't really been taught much about it. Uh, is probably my guess, if I had to guess. Um, so in, according to uh, dispensational premillennial uh, view of, of the rapture, in the future, um, there's going to be a seven-year period called the tribulation or of tri- seven-year period of tribulation that's right before the second coming of Jesus. Um, and the rapture, uh, in, the, in this view, is where Jesus comes back and calls his people up off the earth so that they aren't present on the earth when he unleashes his wrath on the earth. Okay, and, and uh, there's different flavors of this. He might do that at the beginning of the seven years. He might do that in the middle of the seven years. And the more recent, the more recent popular version of this is that, he, that Christians actually will be present on the earth for the tribulation and then be raptured at the second coming. So that's dispensational premillennialism. There will be a quiz later. Um, <laughs> There's another one called, and I'll say, then there's two views, which you can trace all the way back to the first century AD. There's two views. One of them is called Kyliism, and one of them is called non-Kyliism. And um, you don't need to know that either, and I'm just showing off now. So Kyliism is millennialism. So Kylius, whatever, it's the word for thousand, it's the word for thousand, and so... um, uh, a Kyliest position says there's going to be a thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth, and then the final state is ushered in. Non-Kyliism, which is actually 50 years older than Kyliism, 50, um, it, it states that the thousand years is describing the period of time between the resurrection of Christ and his second coming. So those two positions are interesting. Um, both of those believe that the rapture happens at the second coming of Jesus for judgment. So um, whether, whether uh, tribulation is the entire time between Jesus' resurrection and, uh, and second coming, or whether tribulation describes a period of time closer to his second coming, both of those positions believe that the rapture describes the church being very excited about Jesus' second coming, so excited, as a matter of fact, that, I mean, some take this literally, some take it figuratively, that we are caught up into the air. We might fly up off the ground when Jesus is coming back so that we can be with him in the air. And then it says in 1 Thessalonians 4, it says, we meet him in the air, and so we'll always be with him. And so these two positions would say, which direction is he coming when we go to meet him in the air? The answer is he's coming back down to earth to rule and to reign and to judge. So we go meet him in the air and we follow him back down and are with him uh, as, he's, as he's carrying out judgment. And the image, the, the theory there is that the image would have been well known to the first century Christians and earlier um, of a, a conquering Roman general having been on a campaign uh, in the far reaches of the empire, finally coming back to the city, triumphant victorious, carrying with him a train of captives. And the population of the city, who's been waiting the return of their general, goes out of the city gates to meet him, throws a gigantic party, and they all have a parade back in. Um, so the, and, and postmillennialism believes something very similar to that as well. That's the fourth position. So three of the positions believe the thing I just took a lot of time to describe. And the first position uh, describes the thing that probably most of us assume. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So what I'm hearing is that all Christians 
when we look at the scriptures, we believe in a rapture because Thessalonians tells us there will be there one. There will be one, yeah. Just the nature of the rapture and the timing of it. That's right. We believe revelation. Would we say as an elder team, we believe that it's not abundantly clear the timing and specifics of that rapture? Well, yeah, I mean, uh, I think it's clear, personally. As Dave is agnostic, personally, I, am, I think it's clear, personally, the second thing I described. But again, as I said last week, and as I say every time, I think it's clear, but if I'm wrong, um, <laughs> uh, the, the joke is, I will happily change my position midair. Oh, this is how it's happening. Okay, cool, great. I'm, I was wrong. Like, and I mean, I mean that very seriously. So I just, it kind of sets my expectation. This is the other thing I want to say about tribulation and rapture, is um, my, my stance, and what I kind of actually hope to, and I think the pastors are on board with this, and if not, Dave, feel free to contradict me in public. That's great. Um, that we want to be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who were threatened with the fiery furnace. Are you familiar with that old Sunday school story in the Old Testament? And Nebuchadnezzar says, you got to bow down and worship this God. And the, the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, it's not happening. We are not bowing to that God. We don't care about your threat of the furnace because our God is able to save us from that furnace. But even if he doesn't, let it be known to you, O Nebuchadnezzar, that we will never worship an idol. And I do think that in that sort of same spirit, we need to be prepared to go through whatever tribulation the world throws at us um, because our God is able to rescue us out of it if that's his will for us. But even if it isn't, we won't bow our knee to the beast. And we, if, we, if we have to suffer the fiery furnace, so be it. Like that needs to be our heart disposition. We gotta prepare for both uh, uh, because I think it's not clear. We have to prepare for both. Does that make sense? And that's one of the reasons I, I hold a view that it's not... First of all, you got all these scholars that disagree and they know a lot more than I do. <laughs> so I, I think it is good to be prepared for both. And I think one reason I, I don't settle on, you know, it's at the second coming of Christ, as I, as I understand it, there are um, things that need to happen before Christ actually comes. There's things that God said will happen before Christ returns. And if it's not till then, well, then that means you can't come today. You can't come tomorrow. You can't come perhaps even during our lifetime. And I think that we lose this sense of the immediacy, the, intimacy, the immediacy of Christ. He could come today. So I think it's just wise to keep your mind open that, well, maybe, maybe he might come sooner than I expect, even though these signs are not, are not yet fulfilled. And uh, I think Jesus taught that, by the way, um, in his parables in Matthew 24 and 25. Uh, we should be prepared for the long haul. He may come much later than we think, but he may come earlier than we think too. That's right. That's good. So Matt, you were talking, we, we dealt with the rapture. That's good. Everybody's got that figured out. Yeah, we're all good Perfect. On the rapture, we can yeah. move on. No. I'm sure there will be more discussion, but um, we talked about the tribulation a little bit. What's the deal with the tribulation? What is that? Well, it, when I think of it, Jesus said in Matthew 24 that uh, there's... Uh, before he comes back, there's going to be a time of tribulation. I think it's particularly related to the Jewish nation in that, that situation that will be unlike any that ever has been or ever will be. And uh, so that's kind of, I think, where the word great tribulation comes from. It's from Jesus' teaching there in Matthew 24. It might also be in Luke or Mark. Um, so it seems to be, and um, well, there's two views. One is that it's, it's the whole church age from the time Christ died to the time... Uh, you know, 
he comes back. And of course, all of us understand that there is tribulation in this age. No question about that. Uh, there's tribulation. Jesus, uh, Paul said that if we're not those who, all who desire to be, live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. There'll be at least some pressure, at least some oppression upon us if we really follow God the way we should. And uh, so it's part of our age, yes. But uh, then some would say that the Great Tribulation, though, is more toward the end of the age. And some would put seven years looking at uh, uh, Daniel 9 and some of the verses in Revelation that talk about three and a half years, 1260 days, um, you know, that there's, a, there's actually... 42 months. Yeah. 42 months, yeah. That there's actually going to be a defined period of a, a seven years, or some would say three and a half years is when the wrath of God comes. Um, so that, that's often when you hear about the tribula Great Tribulation, it's, it's that latter-day thing just right before the end. So there's some debate on that. Yeah, and the debate would be uh, something like um, if you were to take the word that is trans the Greek word that is translated as tribulation and translate that word consistently, um, those of you who know about Greek translation, I, I do mean in context and with all of those factors, translate that word consistently, you'd see the word tribulation all over the New Testament. Um, suffering, affliction, um, and all of those things uh, often wrap up into this word that we, we say tribulation, but we don't always say tribulation when that word is used. There's reasons for that. But Peter, uh, sorry, John wrote Revelation, not Peter. Um, John called himself in chapter 1, verse 9, he said, I am your partner in tribulation. Um, he, he actually said that. And I think the expectation of the New Testament, Jesus also said, in this world you will have tribulation. Um, we're more familiar with the phrase, in this world you will have trouble. That word is tribulation. In this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. He said that to his followers and to the church. Now, Dave doesn't disagree with that. Um, the, the question, the, the debate is over this phrase that he uses in um, Matthew 26. He, he uses the phrase, the great tribulation, almost like capital G, capital T, great tribulation. Um, when's that going to happen? And so the different views that I described a little bit ago have different understandings of that. The futurist position says the Great Tribulation is a literal seven-year period yet to come based on Daniel 9's 77s. It's the last seven, and so seven years. Um, the, the, the position that I'm, I'm, I lean toward, and I'll, I'll say I lean toward, not I hold, uh, says that Daniel's 70th week um, describes the church age describes the time between the resurrection and the second coming. Both of those positions, they have uh, strengths and weaknesses. They have points you can argue. Um, so, uh, you know, in my view, we're in the tribulation. Uh, in my view, Christians have always suffered tribulation and will always suffer tribulation. And one thing that I like to pull out, and I know, Dave, you don't argue with this at all. This is not, again, this is not a debate, um, that... There have always been pockets of Christians throughout the world that are suffering such a great tribulation that they would say, well, how much worse could it get if we said it's going to get worse before the end? How much worse could it um, Martyrs in Turkey and in Africa uh, today, you know, being beheaded for their faith. Um, now, one way that it could get worse is that Christians all over the globe are suffering that same fate all the time. That's, that's possible. So I guess in my view, I would say it's possible that it's going to get worse 
and we would experience something called the Great Tribulation. I have some suspicion about the literalness of seven years or time times half a time, three and a half years, 1,280 days and 42 months. How is that meant to be taken literally and precisely? I think there's good evidence that it's not uh, meant to be. And those of you who want to debate me later in person, I'd be happy to talk gently about that with you. So, so what I hear both of you saying is whether the, there's a period of great tribulation that comes later or the tribulation that's discussed is talking about the period we're in now, our response should be, we should be prepared to partner with Paul, with you know the apostles, with the other people around us in a time of tribulation, be ready to be opposed right. as bringers of the message of Jesus in a world that opposes him and to be ready to respond, even to give our lives for that, that that's what being a Christian is. That's right. Yeah, I, I do think that there's, uh, that's true, but I think it's also true that um, I believe there will be an intensified tribulation in the end, like Jesus said, like Paul seems to say, um, and that um, there are some signs that need to happen before we enter into that, especially in Second Thessalonians, Paul gives some, gives some of those signs. So I do think there's an intensified period. I, I lean toward it being seven years. So there's that lean, leaning, that lean thing. So that's good. Yeah, let's explore one final thing here, and that's the end. So the question for you is: Is the end nigh? Is it near? Yeah. Well, I think that Jesus gave us a um, kind of a timetable uh, for the the time from his. Um, from his time until now. And it's in Luke 21. And he says there, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that its desolation has come near. And they've just been pointing out to Jesus, look at these awesome buildings. And they really were. It's like one of the seven wonders of the world. It's just incredibly amazing. And so they're said, and, and he says, well, all of these, every stone is going to be thrown down. Incredible thing for them to think about that. And, um, well, that did happen. It happened in 70 A.D., and so I think that's what Jesus is talking about, that uh, Jerusalem was to be desolated, it was to be destroyed. And then he goes on to say, um, they, um, wrath will come upon this people, the Jewish nation. They will be killed by the sword and be led captive into all the nations. So here we see uh, Jesus predicts a second exile. The first exile was uh, the, the Babel, to Babylon. It was to one nation. Here Jesus protects Israel be exiled to all the nations and um, not just one. And that's actually what happened. The Jews have been scattered all across the world, throughout the world. And Jerusalem will be trampled by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And so this will continue to happen until this time is done, which implies that the Jews will return. Once that time of the Gentiles are done trampling Jerusalem, it'll go back into Jewish hands. And so I believe that this is a significant thing that in the timetable of what Jesus gives here, that it's actually happening in our generation. 1942, Israel became a nation. 1967, they gained control of Jerusalem again. And so we may be nearing the end of the, time of the, the times of the Gentiles when that goes back into Jewish hands. And uh, then I think another thing, though, is that uh, he says that um, in First, Second Thessalonians 2, he says that um, this 
they thought, I think they were in the situation where there's so much persecution, they thought, hey, we're in, the, we're in the, the end times, you know, the wrath of God has come, we're in the day of the Lord. And so that was so intense upon them. And someone wrote a letter to them saying, hey, the judgment day is here, you know, this is the end. And Paul says, no, don't be disturbed by that because the end's not going to come until a few things take place. He actually gives some signs. And that is that this the rebellion takes place, the apostasy, the falling away from the faith, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction, a man who will take his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. And then Jesus will slay this man with the breath of his mouth in the appearance of his coming. And so we know that this hasn't happened yet because there's not been someone that Jesus has slain when he comes back. Um, you know, this is something still future in, for, in Second Thessalonians. And so I think we can expect that there's going to be this Antichrist, this man of lawlessness that will arise up, and he's going to take his seat in the temple. So I think this is another thing that needs to happen yet that we can be looking for is the temple to be rebuilt. And I'm taking these things literally. I, I think that... Uh, this is not apocalyptic literature. This is not sim highly symbolic literature. Paul was just teaching what's going to happen in a straightforward and a plain manner um, as he was telling about the future. So to me, it's exciting that Israel has returned to its land, and I think it points to the fact that you know, the end is likely coming. I think we, we should be looking for the you know, rebuilding of the temple and the arising of this man of lawlessness. It doesn't mean that lawlessness, Paul says this, is not doesn't mean that there isn't lawlessness here already. He says it's already at work, but it's being restrained until something, we don't know what it is, is taken out of the way. And, uh, and then this man will be revealed, and the full fury of the, the devil and his lawless, uh, lawlessness is going to come upon the world. So that's, um, that's my understanding, that we, we have some things to show that it's near, but there's still other things that have to happen first before he actually comes back. So another view on that that is also held on the elder team is that uh, Jesus in Luke 21 and its parallels in the other Gospels does say and is describing uh, two events, um, the things which must soon take place and then things that nobody knows the day or the hour. So the armies surrounding Jerusalem happened in 70 AD. It actually took three and a half years uh, for the Roman Empire to siege Jerusalem and ultimately destroy the city and ultimately raise the temple, at which point everyone that was in the city, all the Jews that could, fled, most of them to a city called Pella uh, in, in um, the Middle East, uh, in, in uh, is it Saudi Arabia, Pella? Uh, I, my map is off in my head. Um, the city in Iowa, named Pella, is named after that city and after that situation. Um, so the thing that Jesus was saying is not one of, the, one of this generation will, will pass away until these things take place. He was actually speaking literally there. That generation that heard him was around for the destruction of the temple. And then he said, we don't know the hour of the other thing that needs to happen. So what started happening was at that point, the Gentiles started trampling Jerusalem. Um, and as Dave said, they are still trampling Jerusalem to this day um, and uh, will continue until probably the end. And then what happens, so as you're, probably I'll put it this way maybe, as you're agnostic about the timing and stuff of the rapture, I'm a little agnostic about the seven years toward the end. I don't know that the Bible speaks clearly about that. Um, but certainly 
It would, so, it, but all my cards on the table, and I've had this discussion with a few of you who have asked me personally, I'll just say it to the whole congregation, all my cards on the table, I do think it's going to get worse, even with my nice little amillennial, you know, eclecticist theology. I do think it's going to get worse. And, um, you know, uh, I said a little bit ago, how much worse could it possibly get? Some Christians are asking. I'll just say, I have a pretty vivid imagination. Uh, um, and I think that every, I don't think, I know that every single generation of Christians has had cause to, has thought and has had cause to think that they may be in the end times or the end times may be very, very soon. And I think we, uh, we in our day need to take heed that our brothers and sisters for the last 2,000 years, there's always been a pocket of Christians who have thought the end is, is probably near. And they've had things to point to culturally and historically and in terms of global events uh, to prove it. And so, for, for example, one thing would be the fall of the Roman Empire in the 300s, 400s AD. Boy, society as we know it, completely collapsing. That happened again 500 years later. It happened again 500 years after that in the Renaissance and lots of those sorts of things. We see it in our, in our near past with Hitler rising up and destroying how many? Six million Jews? Like, that's a lot. <laughs> that's a lot. Um, there's other dictators that you could point at all throughout history, Christians have had cause to look and go, I wonder if the end is near. And I think that's intentional. I think God uh, uh, is, uh, has intentionally said, no one knows the day or the hour. I'm not saying he, he's intentionally putting these mass dictators on the planet and making them cause mass suffering so that nobody can know the end. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that the outcome of the human condition of sin is suffering on a global scale. And I think that will continue. It's possible that it will get worse. And it is very possible that we're close. And I definitely could be wrong about 1949 or 42 and uh, the establishment of the nation state of Jerusalem. And again, uh, like with the rapture and lots of other things, uh, if I see two witnesses standing in the street breathing fire on people, I will say, I was wrong. That's amazing. Praise the Lord. Um, So I, I guess my emphasis probably as I look at the book in eschatology is the perseverance through our present day suffering. I, I, I see John writing to the first century and the first century having something strong to take out of it, to put into practice in their daily life in the first century, even though the end of the end was not for another 2,000 years. And I see that for us today. And it's possible that in our lifetime, uh, Christ will return, but a few things have to happen first. So, mm-hmm. yeah. I, I would agree with that. I think that is the, uh, the emphasis that we need to take out of it. And also, I agree with what you said earlier. Is I don't think we should be setting, looking for this sign here, this sign. Okay, he's coming, he's coming. To me, there's one basic sign. It's this abomination of desolation, this rise of the Antichrist. And uh, that things like wars and rumors of wars and those times. Jesus said those things are going to happen, mm-hmm. you know. So I agree with you that I think every generation has maybe not taken Jesus' words to heart. And we need to be careful that we don't either. There can be really awful things in your culture and in your war, wars and so forth, earthquakes, famines, everything, all over the place. Jesus says, those aren't signs of the end. Those are just the beginning of birth pangs. And um, so I think we need to be careful about sign setting, looking at signs. Also, we should never set dates. That that has really caused a lot of um, disgrace to the body of Christ, I think, as people have tried to say. Yeah, heartache. Yeah, exactly. And so I don't think we should do that, but um, so I agree with that. Long for his coming. And, and certainly persecution, yeah. suffering all the way through. We should probably wrap up here. That's right. Yep. So we're running out of time here. So what I'm hearing you say is regardless of our position on end times, we should heed Jesus' words 
I'm coming back soon. Coming back Be soon. ready. Stay alert. Stay alert. Keep your eyes up. Keep your focus on Christ and the work that God has called you to. So, Matt, would you close us in prayer? I will. So, Father, uh, we're just grateful for the fact that you are sovereign over all creation. The fact that you are sovereign even over, even in our suffering. You're in control. You're with us. You're not just sovereign over it, but you're present with us. And that you're walking with us side by side. You're sealed inside those of us who know you, Holy Spirit. Uh, we're just grateful that you, you don't uh, turn us loose to fire and judgment uh, and, um, and then wait for us to fend ourselves. But like the angel in the fire with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you're there keeping us from being, not only keeping us from being burnt, but they didn't even smell like smoke when they got out. And I'm just grateful, Lord, that we will, in that same way, when we are in you, Christ, we will be spared judgment and wrath. And we will be protected even through suffering and even through martyrdom. And I just pray, Lord, that you would encourage us, encourage my brothers and sisters, encourage us as elders as we look into this book that is, it is challenging. Uh, it's it's um, meant to be. It's meant to be challenging. Help us to face the challenge. Help us to bear up under with courage, with, um, with boldness in proclaiming the gospel, even in the face, uh, even in the face of the, the world who hates us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.